Hello, hello, and welcome back to Art House Garage, the snob-free film podcast where we make art house, indie, classic, and foreign cinema accessible to the masses. I'm your host, Andrew Sweatman, and today we've got a Tony Leung extravaganza. We are reviewing the latest film from Marvel Studios, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, which stars Simu Liu and Tony Leung, and we continue the Wong Kar Wai marathon with a look at 1997's Happy Together, which also stars Tony Leung. Joining us for all the Tony Leung discussions today is the one and only Tony Leung. No, not really. That would be great, <laughs> but <laughs> almost as good. We've got Omaya Jones for the entire episode. Stick around. Throughout my life, the Ten Rings gave our family power. If you want them to be yours one day, you have to show me you are strong enough to carry them. You are a product of all who came before you. The legacy of your family. You are your mother. And whether you like it or not, you are also your father. I told my men they wouldn't be able to kill you if they tried. Glad I was right. You're just a criminal who murders people. Be careful how you speak to me, boy. I thought I could change my name. Start a new life. But I could never escape his shadow. My son, you can't run from your past. Is this what you wanted? You got this. Thank you. That was the trailer for Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. This is the newest film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and it stars Simu Liu, Aquafina, Michelle Yeoh, Benedict Wong, and of course, Tony Leung. Here to break it down with us is the wonderful Omaya Jones, film podcaster and programmer of the Arkansas Times film series. Omaya, welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. I am so excited. Thanks for pulling double duty today. It only made sense because uh, we've been talking about Tony Leung quite a bit in our Wong Kar Wai marathon. So here we are again with the Tony Leung connection in Shang-Chi. Uh, so I thought, why not make it a double with, with Omaya today? So thank you. No problem. Well, this is Shang-Chi. Brief plot summary. Uh, this is, again, the latest MCU movie. Um, it focuses on the character Shang-Chi, who I was not familiar with, you know, from comics or anything before um, this movie. And, you know, I, I 
learned a little bit as things went by or as, as um, as things were on the internet and, and everything over the last few months. Uh, but he, it actually starts with his father, who is Tony the Young, and we kind of see the history of the, the Ten Rings, the titular Ten Rings, which are these bracelets that uh, give the wearer a lot of power, basically. And um, we see Tony the Young's character, who is named um, Winwu, and seeing him over the years because these rings also make you immortal so he's been alive for a thousand years or something uh conquering uh, civilizations and then as time goes on causing problems and uh or or you know terrorizing different governments around the around the world there's like a little hint that uh, of like the guy fox um blowing up parliament like so like the tin rings as his organization becomes called um is behind a lot of things in history. Uh, and then it shows him falling in love with Shang-Chi's mother. And we see young Shang-Chi. Uh, and then we cut to him living in San Francisco, friends with Aquafina. He's a valet and he kind of has kind of a boring life. Um, and then his past comes back to haunt him basically. And uh, we, we learn more about his father and more about his mother and things kind of grow from there uh, into a, a pretty great action movie. I thought it was pretty great. I'm curious to see what you think about it. Uh, but before we get into the movie, when you and I talk, Omaya, usually we're talking cinema. So I actually forgot until recently that you also have a lot of comic book knowledge. So I'd love to hear about your background as far as comic books go. Yeah. So um, I started reading comics. I don't know. It's probably somewhere between like 89 and 93 I think regularly when the X-Men cartoon started on Fox and then it kind of became an obsession uh, to the point that I went to SCAD and my major was in sequential art, which is a fancy way of saying comic books. And so um, I still sort of collect, I don't collect, I don't buy monthly titles anymore. um, Although I have quite a number of, they're called long boxes, you know, those long cardboard boxes where you store comics. Yeah. I have like nine of those um, and then some that are stacked in the closet. But mostly what I buy now are either trade paperbacks, hardcovers. Um, I started during the pandemic dabbling in uh, original artwork. So I have uh, a few pages, um, one that I'm really happy to have just because it's a uh, uh, the artist is no longer with us is a Punisher page hmm. by um, Steve Dillon from the Garth Ennis run of Punisher that they did together. And it doesn't feature Punisher on it, which is why I think it was sort of affordable. Hmm. Um, I don't know if you, if you like get into like comic book pages, you'll see like the, the price of a page depends on like the characters that are on it and the number of characters and the, and the type of, of shot and all of this stuff. Um so when you say original artwork, else, this is like a like a panel or a page from a comic that's like blown up as a piece of art. No, like the page that was drawn and then inked, like and then was photographed for publication. I see. Um, so yes, uh, presumably this this page was at one point on Steve Dillon's. Oh, like it desk. is the original. Oh, I see. It, yes, it is the original. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's cool. And then I also have, there's, there's actually uh, are a fair number of comic book artists that live locally. Uh, mm-hmm. One of whom was a, is a guy named Jolton Johnny Lucas. And he recently moved to Fayetteville or maybe like in the past year and a half or so. But I also, uh, sometimes he'll sell his original pages on eBay. Uh, and so sometimes I'll grab those. Cause I think it's just neat to see those because they have all these neat textures and things. Wow. 
Um, and then like artist edition books. And then I feel like my prize possession is probably from when Marvel filed for bankruptcy in the late nineties, they put a bunch of stuff on eBay that included a drafting table that was um, signed. It was, it's from the, the Marvel bullpen and it's signed by Joe Casada, uh, who was the editor in chief at Marvel at the time. Wow. Um, and it's still in comics. So, yeah, I, I, I don't know. And th- I have a bunch of stuff that takes up a lot of space and it's not very <laughs> conducive to living a clutter free life. But so your comic uh, roots run pretty deep. So, so are you like in particular into Marvel stuff or, or just kind of all over the place? I would say that when I did read monthly, um, I would read mostly Marvel. I had a pretty healthy Marvel habit. Um, although I did dabble in some DC stuff and then image and, and other, uh, smaller publishers as well. Uh, especially like there was a, there was a year. Um, so on the Batman books, they used to have these crossovers that ran between all of the bat books. And for one year they had this storyline called no man's lane, which was partially adapted into the third dark Knight film. And the huh. premise is like, there's been, um, there has been, there was a storyline called contagion when, which raised all ghoul, um, uh, unleash a virus on the world. And I think there might've been another storyline after that. Um, I think it was, a there was an earthquake that hit Gotham. And then, so there was this storyline that ran through all of the Batman books for a year called no man's land. Um, in which the government just decided to stop dealing with Gotham and just closed it off oh, from wow. the rest of the world. Uh, and in a movie connection, I think like the first issue of that was written by Bob Gale who was one of the writers of back to the future, which is at the time. Interesting. Yeah. So yeah, but mostly Marvel. Um, I used to read a lot of X-Men Wolverine Spider-Man at at one point. Um, But I think there's a connection with movies and that I think at some point you realize that, Oh, people actually make these things. Mm. Um, Like Mm. they don't just, you know, pop into the world like magic. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I think like people, you have like this choice between sort of following characters or following creators. And I got into the habit of just following like different creators that I like. Hmm. So, and, and then going down that path, I got into the point of just like kind of buying books and looking at them for the artwork uh, and appre- appreciating them more for the art than necessarily the story or the writing. Hmm. Um, so I, I kind of like to follow artists and, and um, just look at the pretty pictures that they make. Yeah. I love it. Well, before this movie, did you know anything about the character of Shang-Chi? I was familiar with him, but I feel like he wasn't a very prominent character throughout the 90s or 2000s. And I've done some reading about it, and I can see why. So comics are like a copycat medium in that they tend to do what is popular. And in the 70s, when Shang-Chi was created, uh, there are also characters like um, Power Man, um, Luke Cage, um, that were inspired by popular things in films. So like whether mm. it was exploitation mm. or uh, revenge films, like right, like the Punisher comes from revenge films and Shang-Chi came from this popularity, uh, this popular explosion in Kung Fu films, particularly after like Enter the Dragon came out. And his origin is, was tied in with this character Fu Manchu. Are you familiar with him? Yeah. 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 So, uh, and originally in the comics, uh, Shang-Chi's father is Fu Manchu. Um, who the, I guess Marvel had licensed from the original creator, um, but it's not really acceptable as a character yeah. anymore because it's basically it's, 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 it's just a stereotype. Yeah, the and so yeah. 
And I think that that kind of like has to do with his lack of uh, exposure and popularity in the over the next couple of decades or so. Yeah. Yeah, that's I heard a just an interview with a director of Shang-Chi who is Destin Daniel Cretton and he they asked him about like what was it like to adapt this uh, when you look at like the history of this character there's a lot of problematic or caricature kind of things in it and he he talked about the the process of creative freedom that kind of gave him to like really rewrite everything and and do his best to make these you know human characters and everything yeah that's interesting that you know in a way it was inspired by film and now we're back to (laughs) a film version of this character um so as this movie goes how does this stack up for you among like other Marvel movies? Uh, it's, it's interesting because like typically my one critique of, of superhero films is how often they are origin stories. Cause I kind yeah. of dislike them mm-hmm. uh, just because they tend to be by the numbers. But yeah. I like what I like about this is that, you know, when the film starts out, he is Shang-Chi essentially. Yeah. Um, they do a good job of getting to the action really quickly uh, and then sort of uh, cutting his, like the, all of the background elements, you know, they cut it up and, and present it throughout the film yeah. in a way that I think works really nicely. Mm-hmm. Uh, it also helps that the actors are all very compelling and interesting. Uh, I love Aquafina um, as a, a not because I was going to watch Shang Chi, but just by coincidence, I ended up watching the first season of Nora from Queens, which is her show. Yeah, uh, and there's an episode. Well, th- there's an episode that I won't get into like plot specifics, but there's a, an episode. That is a flashback episode in which she's asking her grandmother about how she came to America and how she met her grandfather. Mm. And Simeon Liu plays her grandfather in these flashbacks. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, and her grandmother's, and in the flashbacks, her grandmother's best friend is uh, the woman in Shang-Chi who is her lawyer friend that they talk to yeah, at the bar. Yeah, yeah. So there's this overlap between um, all of these projects, which I think is interesting. Um, but yeah, no, like um, there was one disappointment that I don't know if I should talk about. Uh, cause it, it has to do with the end of the, well, it's in the trailer, I guess. Should I talk? Should I just say, I was going to maybe mention the ending and talk about an external threat that shows up and kind of be vague about it. <laughs> the, there's, okay. There's a, so there's a lot of father son oh, drama, right. but then actually, there's something else that happens at the kind of the very end that comes in. That's another threat. And we can maybe not spoil that. Well, I would just say that I love that, uh, okay. for reasons, um, I loved it, and I, I, I. So one critique that I often have is that how the way that these films always end in a big CGI fight. Exactly what um, I was going to say. Yeah. And so ahead. I kind of have an issue with that, but I love, I love, I love Cthulhu monsters. Mm, yeah, so yeah, yeah. There's that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's basically what I was going to say as far as my complaint about this is, like a lot of the Marvel movies, it goes into a big CGI fest at the very end. Uh, but I, I do think it's more interesting than a lot of the other CGI fests that we get and because of the, the that external threat that shows up. It's, it's a little more um, interesting than, I don't know some of the others that we've seen in, in some of these other movies. Yeah. I mean, it was, it's a film that there's a lot of like magic and mysticism and stuff throughout the film. Yeah. Um, but then like at that point in the end, it sort of like goes into overdrive in a way that I, I, you, I kind of wish they get, they could avoid, but then again, mm-hmm. like, I don't know, they show a dragon in the trailer. Yeah. Um, that's true. Yeah. Like that, cause of the final, very final scene, you can't, I can't even really tell what was going on. Like it gets to that, that much of a muddled situation mm-hmm. where, um, it's just so chaotic that, I will say, it, um, yeah. I am happy, but while I'm happy now, but while I was in the theater, was sort of disappointed 
that the that the dragon wasn't Fin Fang Foom, which is another uh, Marvel character who is a dragon from or like a dragon like creature from another dimension that is not in this film. Um, yeah, I don't. That's it's a personal thing. I just got excited because I guess the thing that excites me is just like the more successful these films are, the more changes they can take, the more weird yeah. ideas from the comics can make them do the films. Mm-hmm. Um, and then whenever there's not like a really strange thing, um, or I think that they they kind of hold back. This isn't that necessarily. This was just me making assumptions based off the trailer. Um, but yeah, sometimes I, I, I want them to swing for the fences more in terms of how weird things can get because I feel like people are willing to accept weirdness. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I have um, kind of a problem with with uh, some Marvel movies is when characters make cameos, uh, I think they th- that it's supposed to make the world feel bigger, like anything mm. can happen and all these people are interacting. But I think it actually makes the films feel a little small, mm. right? Like it's the difference between living in a city and living in a country, you know, because like or living in like Little Rock versus New York, where like in Little Rock, it's not unexpected to run into people that you right. know, yeah. but in New York City, it's just bigger. So like when characters, um, like in this film, there's a scene uh, in a cage Kingsley. match. Oh, okay, no, no. Oh, I see uh, well, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Yeah, so like like that scene in particular, it's just like why did why those two characters? Um, yeah, yeah, what, yeah. I, what, just just because it makes it feel like more insular. Yeah, um, I see what you mean. Yeah, it it was it's kind of like a Benedict Wong's character is just like all over the place for some reason. <laughs> you yeah, know? and I like his character a lot, but it's it it's kind of weird that he would be there too. I agree mm. with that. Um, so speaking of performances earlier, what did you think of Tony Leung in this movie? I thought it was great. Um, I was surprised, uh, pleasantly surprised to see him do something that we are not going to get to see him do throughout the bulk of this box set, which is really emote um, mm. in a different way. Yeah. And I think like he he adds dimensions to the character that are not necessarily there a lot of times in villain roles because mm-hmm. um, he is such a fantastic actor. Um, and it makes me think of how like, you know, when you read about him and you read about a lot of these actors, actually, like Michelle, um, not Michelle Yeoh, but uh, Mackie Chung, and Tony Long and how they have this background in Chinese television doing like comedies uh, and, th- and things mm-hmm. and like, but through these one car Y films, which are mostly, I think what people are familiar with just because a lot of that stuff is not exported to right. the U S mm-hmm. we don't get to see their full range of skills. And so this is like a nice chance to see him do something different than that, than what he usually does. There's some brooding, but it's you know it's not the bulk of his performance. Yeah, it's a little bit bigger. Yeah, I I think he's fantastic in this. He's 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 like the first time I saw him in Junking Express, I realized like he just has this kind of magnetism, and he definitely brings that to this. Um, it was interesting for me because I haven't seen him in just a ton of things. I haven't heard him speak English a lot, and and mm-hmm. for a lot of this movie, he is. And something about that, like I, I'm able to kind of pick up on more just because i'm a native english speaker more nuance and like he's more gravelly and kind of whispery sometimes and Mm -hmm. in different places in a way that he's not in like happy together for instance of course he's a lot younger in happy together um but but yeah i think he as far as villains go he's almost not a villain like he's kind of a uh well he's a villain right he is he is he's he's the leader of an international Right, <laughs> international criminal organization that has been on. I don't know what their aims are, but but he, I've seen other people refer to him as almost an anti-hero because you empathize so much with him more than most other villains, and that's just because I think his his range is, or his dramatic 
acting chops are so good and i think that there's also i I saw some quote from him that he he didn't treat it as a villain as you know as an actor um but but i just think you really do feel for him in in these scenes um where he's like he thinks he's doing the right thing uh as a father and all this anyway uh but yeah definitely a villain super evil but (laughs) but i think it's it's his motivations are seem noble right right like and and even even the fact um i don't think it's a spoiler said that his character's arc is—it's about the possibility of redemption, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And can you can you make amends for things that you do wrong? Can you change? And that's the, that's sort of the question that the character is asking. Um, and I think that he is able to pull that off convincingly. Um, mm-hmm. And like I, I know I wonder. I think there's a, there's a lot on the on the page. I just think in the script, it's more realized villain than what you usually get. Yeah, maybe in that's one of true. These things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I thought he was really great. I, one of my favorite things about this movie is the, just the complicated father son uh, relationship that kind of goes and goes throughout the whole thing. Um, yeah. I, I, that's, that's probably one of my strengths of it. Uh, any other kind of favorite things about this movie for you? Um, we were talking about this before the movie came out. There was a clip they released of the bus fight in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And there is a nod to a uh, Jackie Chan move from Rumble in the Bronx to really like oh, that nice. involves his jacket. Uh, and I remember like, you know, I, I said at the time that just like, it, it, it doesn't necessarily do your film favors to compare it to a Jackie Chan film, but I think <laughs> it was a nice send up. Uh, also notably uh, the stunt choreographer yeah, who, since he passed recently yeah, um, was part of Jackie Chan's stunt crew and had worked with him. Yeah. And there's like a little um, in loving memory thing in the credits I noticed uh, to him, uh, Brad Allen, is that his name? I believe so. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, yeah. I, that was one of the things I was going to say was that I think as far as the action goes, it's, it's one of the strongest for me. Like uh, looking at Marvel movies, I think I always have to like wait five years and then look back and like, see, how do I really feel like this? I know it's recency bias right now, but this is way up there for me uh, partially because of the action scenes, like this kind of martial arts style action is, I don't know, a lot more compelling to me than um, the like more militaristic stuff in Captain America or mm. explosion-y action stuff in Iron Man movies or even the sci-fi stuff in the Guardians movies. Like for me, these action scenes are some of the best of, of the whole MCU. Like the, the bus scene is fantastic. The scaffolding scene I think is really good mm-hmm. where they're outside that building. The final scene, maybe not my favorite of the film, but I think it's strong as well. Uh, but yeah, I really, really like the action in this movie. A whole lot. I mean, honestly, I think prior to this, the high point would probably be um, the airport scene in Civil War. Yeah. And that is really just about, it's like, like that scene is about taking your action figures and lining them up and then (laughs) lining them into each other. Yes. Um, But just like getting to see the different heroes and how they sort of react to each other and use their powers and coordinate or don't coordinate is what's interesting. But um, I think any of the ones that are directed by the Russo brothers tend to be like my other favorites outside of this one mm. and then they just the way they have handled action in the past is really good even though i know like when it's marvel they they have so many action coordinators coming in that like how much of the directors really have a handle on that it's not clear but um but yeah the yeah i think that changes from film to film mm, yeah uh do you, have you heard the story of uh lucretia martel i think so go ahead and tell it though yeah well, she so she she is a is sort of a, a an art house director. She directed at films like Zama, and there's mm-hmm. a story from I think when when I think it was when that film was at Cannes, um, 
And I think Marvel was there and they were just sort of looking for a woman to direct a Marvel mm-hmm. film. Mm-hmm. Um, and they approached her about doing, uh, I think it would have been Captain Marvel at the time. And she, they told her that she wanted to worry about the action. And so it's, it's always unclear to me, like, okay, so this is a film that's probably already in development and they want someone to come and work with the actors, but not worry about the action. Mm-hmm. I think the way that got spun was that because she was a woman, they didn't want to handle the action. Mm-hmm. But I think it's a little more complicated than that. Like, I think with someone like James Gunn, I think has more hands on in every aspect of like the Guardians movies. Right. Uh, um, if only because I think he's probably been involved since the inception. Whereas with um, something like, like, I know, like, there was some amount of work done on Black Panther before Ryan Coogler was, was hired. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much work. Um, or even with uh, the Avengers movies, uh, I think the John Wick guys, didn't they do some second unit stuff on some of the huh. Avengers movies? I don't know. That, that, that would make sense. I, th- I, th- I think they did. Um, I was thinking about so, so like Taika Waititi with Thor Ragnarok. I think mm-hmm. that like the action scenes are probably not the thing he was the most inspired to create in that movie. Like so, mm-hmm. and, and I think they're yeah. not the strongest parts of that movie. So like that's like the kind of movie where probably they had, you yeah. know, Marvel team helping yeah. out. So I feel like every production is a little different. Yeah. And so it's if you're not there, it's hard to know exactly who's doing what. But in general, um, I think they don't hire. Especially now that they're hiring like these indie directors, I don't think they're hiring them for their action direction jobs, right? Yeah, necessarily. But it does seem like a lot of attention was paid to the action here, especially because mm-hmm. it's you know paying homage to the kung fu movies in so many ways and all of that. But yeah, uh, really strong action here. Um, as far as performances, yeah, I was going to mention Aquafina as well. I really love the film she was in, The Farewell, a couple years ago, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. It, some little flashes of that where you know she has her. We meet her family. I like that we meet her family. That's a, a nice touch and, and kind of really adds some, um, I don't know, some some roots to the to the characters at the beginning of the movie. I think her and um, Simu, Simu Liu have uh, a good chemistry and like they both kind of come from comedy originally. And so like that, it makes sense to have them together uh, doing that. And their relationship is kind of interesting too. And it feels like it's going to go more places probably. Kind of well, some I, I, was, I would say that was actually one of my favorite parts of the movie was the relationship between those two Yeah, because it felt real. It felt like they were really friends and it felt authentic and it felt like there was some potential there for something else, but that wasn't the point of this film. Right. Yeah. Uh, and there's a scene near the end uh, where they're just sitting next to each other and then they put their heads on each other's shoulders. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really sweet. And, and I, I just, I really liked that yeah. scene a lot. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, and I was going to say about uh, Simu Liu, like, I think th- I've heard uh, some things saying, oh, he, you know, he can't sack up to Tony Leung, of course, but no, he's fine, whatever. I did think he was good. Like, I, I, I've heard some, like, negative things about him in this movie, but um, I don't think there's any, like, cringy moments of acting or anything like that. I think, like, th- there are some scenes that, um, like, there's a scene where he cries. I think the same, same scene that you're talking about, he kind of tears up at the end, but it's like... Mm-hmm. Uh, if this was, you know, Robert Downey Jr. or or Chris Evans, you would have a close up of you know their their weeping face or whatever. But but here we just have him kind of like almost on the edge of the screen, kind of barely crying. And like maybe they know that's not his strength, and like that works for this movie. And um, yeah, I just thought that was good. And like there's a kind of a final scene with with he and Tony Leung, and uh, it's like dramatic, but it's also an action scene. And I don't know, I thought it worked. Like I, I never had a, a feeling like oh he's not a very good actor. Uh, but he definitely brings the physical presence and the, the comedy side of it really strong. Um, so, yeah, I liked him. 
I'm excited to see kind of what they do with the character mm-hmm. um, going forward. Yeah, because as always, there's post-credits things that are hinting towards more with these characters. And, uh, you know, now that we've had the Infinity Saga behind us, what is the the next thing they're building towards? And it probably has to do with the stuff that happened in the Loki show and that's coming up in Doctor Strange and all of that. I feel like that's a whole other conversation. But yeah, I'm really interested to see where Shang-Chi fits in with everything going forward. Well, that is Shang-Chi and The Legend of the Ten Rings. Uh, I'm a, a fan of it as Marvel movies go. It, it's up there for me and sounds like you enjoyed it quite a bit as well. Amaya. Yeah, I did. I did. I dug it. Um, very excited for its success. Yes, me too. Yeah. And then the box office has been good and promising and box office is such a weird thing. And again, a whole nother conversation we don't have to get into, but that is playing now in theaters. If you are able to safely go to the theater, uh, we both encourage you to see it. Are you fine? And now we move from Marvel to Criterion as we continue our marathon through the Blu-ray box set, World of Wong Kar Wai. Thus far, we've looked at As Tears Go By, Days of Being Wild, Chunking Express, and Fallen Angels. And today we are discussing Wong Kar Wai's 1997 film, Happy Together. Uh, so this did, as I said, came out in 1997. It stars Leslie Chung and Tony Leung. And it tells the love story of these two men living in Argentina. They have a pretty tumultuous relationship. Uh, It's really tender at times. It's also very volatile at other times. Um, There's a lot of side characters. And kind of in Wong Kar Wai fashion, it's sort of a winding narrative that doesn't quite follow a structure that you might expect and um, goes some some really interesting places. Um, Yeah, that's that's kind of the the basics of it. How many times have you seen this movie, Amaya? Um, I would say one and a half. So I hadn't seen this before we started this Mm -hmm. Uh, and so i watched it the first time in this box set and then i wanted to see i saw on the criterion channel they had um what i guess was the 1997 release right so so i started to watch that um but it was late in the night and i probably fell asleep or something because (laughs) did you notice any major uh, differences with color or anything no but i i looked up on the site that we, we referenced before uh, the film censorship.com or, or whatever the site is. And it seems as though most of the changes are bits of uh, monologue. Hmm, um, and so I feel like the changes make some of the things maybe more ambiguous, uh, less uh, pointed and uh, it's almost like rewriting 
Uh, and I know, and I think part of the story with the film is that some of the original negative or some of the original sound may have been lost in a fire. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but those sound elements still existed somewhere at least because I think the Kino, the, the version that was released on Kino is uh, similar, if not the same as the alternate cut that's on the Criterion channel. Mm-hmm. Um, so those audio elements seem like they were available, uh, but for whatever reason, Wong Kar Wai wanted to change the story. Interesting. Which well, does, does yeah, not out of character. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, I wasn't planning to watch it, but now I want to <laughs> go see it. But um, I've just seen it the once. This is my first time seeing it. Um, on the disc, there's a, a documentary, which we'll talk about that in a minute. But there's some interesting kind of deleted scenes and stuff, too, which we'll talk about. Uh, brief reaction to this film. A couple things you really like about it. Uh, I loved it. Uh, I, I sort of, I felt like this is the film that I was waiting for as we were going mm. through the set to see like when the, the shift happens. Uh, I said before that I was really taken with days of being a while, which I've seen before, but it's been a long time. Um, I always love talking express. Uh, I feel like I came off overly negative on <laughs> fallen, fallen angels. angels. <laughs> um, but I think that like, this is the, sh- this is where the shift happens. And, uh, well, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about it later, but there's some notes that, um, they intentionally approach this film differently, um, stylistically wanting to do things differently. And of course, like as shooting went on and they got stressed, they reverted to some of their old habits, but I think there's a difference enough of a difference in style that it feels like a leap forward, um, which is what I was hoping for from falling angels. Um, yeah. And, and like, like to me, like the first sign, I think like the moment I fell in love with the film is the first color shot. Cause it opens in black and white mm-hmm. and uh, it's just the, the, the waterfall, the waterfall shot, yeah. like the helicopter shot of the waterfall. Amazing. And the, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to try to pronounce the name of the song. Kokuruku uh, Ku Paloma. <laughs> Kukuruku. Uh, right. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's the I.I.I. song. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And that like that, it's just that plane over the mm-hmm. waterfall. And so it's the shot that is initially um, has no connection to anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I guess that that's the destination they are trying to reach with the film up to that point has been in black and white. That's in color. Why is that? We don't really know um, what resonance is this going to have. Uh, and that is all revealed throughout the course of the film. Uh, and maybe it's because like during uh, quarantine, I also like went through a bunch of Pedro Almodovar movies and like that song, that rendition of that song is used in the film. Talk to her. Uh, and also that song is also used uh, sort of ironically in the five year engagement. Oh, have you, have <laughs> yeah, you seen that? I have, but I haven't watched it in a long time. Yeah. The, the Chris Pratt character sings that song at his wedding. <laughs> that, that sounds familiar. Uh, like, like he's, he's, he's learned the Spanish kind of version. Yeah. yeah. That's really Which funny. of course uh, makes it clear that he has not um, translated the lyrics at all. <laughs> it sounds romantic. So he does it. Uh, even if it doesn't necessarily fit that occasion. Um, but yeah, like at that point I, I sort of like, I like kind of fell in love with the movie. And then there's like a scene later that I love where uh, the totally on character is just, uh, uh, well, another character gives him like the tape recorder and mm-hmm. he cries into it, you know, and just like that kind of stuff. It's like, okay, I, I'd love yeah. it. Yeah. That scene was really great and and probably the most emotional, maybe that I've been through this whole box set so far. Like this one, you asked me as soon as I texted you, I finished the movie. You said, did you cry? <laughs> I was like, I appreciate <laughs> the question. And yeah, I did. <laughs> uh, but yeah, this one I thought was really strong. Like both of those lead performances are really good. Uh, like, and, and the, the, um, 
the essay that's in the Criterion box set calls this uh, the first master uh, i can't remember master class performance from tony young in this in the box set uh, i think leading into in the mood for love and 2046 for the next few um but yeah i think tony Young is incredible in it uh leslie chung like they both have such kind of a different energy and they like really work that on the screen and it really works together really nicely um the setting i think is really uh interesting like the city itself in buenos aires but also like in that apartment which we spend so much time in that one room and um yeah it just it it plays into the story in a big way and uh just again like the the emphasis on physical spaces and things uh i think is really really well done in this and the narrative structure just being um loosey goosey is not the right word but maybe like meandering in a way that mm-hmm. um you know it's 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 so unique compared to other film makers most of what i watch most of the time you know so it, it feels so different and kind of refreshing in that way right well so i um I can't remember. Have we laid out the plot? Uh, no, just very basics. Go ahead and I'll let you Okay. So we'll just like, you know, so the story is these two characters who are from Hong Kong who go to Argentina for um, either to try to like reestablish the relationship, rebuild a connection, or uh, like the pressures of the impending uh, Hong Kong handover. Mm-hmm. Uh, for whatever reason, um, running from their families, they've decided to go to Argentina. And it's interesting to me that like, so if you're just watching the film – the Argentina scenes, there's not a lot of indications about when you are, yeah. but it, it is set place in the present day of at the time that the film was shot. And, and it's almost as though like searching for like a past that doesn't exist anymore in Hong Kong. They went to Argentina and they didn't go to like the main city center. Mm-hmm. They went to the outskirts where the, where the, where there's not as much infrastructure and things are sort of older and crumbling. And like, it's like they're trying to recreate something from uh, 20 years previous in Hong Kong, but mm. in Argentina. And I thought that was really interesting. Um, I think some of the set design sort of wants uh, that as well. I don't know. I was really, I was really excited um, for, for a lot of things about the movie, but yeah, I don't, I don't like just, uh, I don't know. I like, I like films that are set in the present day, but just mm-hmm. by virtue of where they happen to be, it's sort of ambiguous as to what time it is. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. So like the first shot in the whole movie is a passport and that ends up playing into the story as well. Um, but, but yeah, you kind of get a sense of place. And so they they talk about it in the film and then I think in this documentary that's on the disc to Wonka Wai explicitly says like this is in a way the anti-Hong Kong. It's literally on the opposite side of the world as far as you can mm-hmm. go from Hong Kong. And so that's kind of um, maybe why they went there. And, and I really like the part where um, – I think it's Tony Lung's character in, in monologue and he's talking about, uh, or like voiceover talking about, I wonder what Hong Kong looks like upside down. And then it cuts to some shots of Hong Kong upside down. <laughs> it's like a funny little kind of visual joke, but also just like pondering that physical distance from where, you know, his home is and all of that. I, th- I thought was pretty interesting. Well, let's talk about this in context of Wong Kar Wai's other films. So this did come, um, directly after fallen angels right there was nothing else because we've had a few other films kind of pop in between that are not in the set but in this case this was the very next thing he made right yeah so this takes place this this film comes right after fallen angels um 
he wanted to do so like i guess at some point in the 80s someone handed him a book by the writer manuel puig and he wanted to adopt mm-hmm. ad, or adapt um i think he wanted to adapt heartbreak tango um as a novel so this one it started off uh he intended to adapt the novel the buenos aires affair by manuel puig and very quickly, I guess, they jettisoned the idea. And the plot of the novel is very different, but you see structurally what he does take from the novel uh, is the nonlinear nature of it. Mm. So, like, the first chapter starts out with one character's POV, the next chapter is another character's POV, and then we go back to the first character, but it's sort of the story of, of uh, her parents, and it's sort of broken up to first her, her relationship with her mother, then her father. Uh, I think there are also chapters that might just be, like, letters or other sort of, like, almost, like, documentary um, types of uh, not evidence because it's not like a crime novel, but mm. like documentary, uh, doc- just documents and things like that. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's very fractured, um, in its nature. And sort of like one of the things that I think Wonka Wai is trying to capture is just the ability of a fractured narrative that you can do in novels that aren't often done in films. Mm, yeah. uh, and so and so that translates uh, into the film, um. By, you know, having sort of these flashbacks in black and white and you get the shot of the waterfall and there's some things in color uh, and sort of trying to like they have like a lamp that is Mm. a lamp of the waterfall. Right. In their apartment and sort of like uh, making this connection between those that those objects like that desire to go to this place and and the lamp is a stand-in for it or things like that. Um, And so he like he's playing with all these different novelistic elements as opposed to just doing a straight linear narrative. Yeah. Interesting. And that is reminding me of a lot of the uh, commentary on the Chunking Express, um, Tony Rain's commentary. He talks about those kind of literary elements quite a bit in, in across different films. But yeah, Tony Rain's, by the way, did the uh, subtitles. Did you, did oh, you look at the credits? No, that's funny. Yeah, yeah. I, I I had not realized that before, but yeah, he's a subtitler and he's he does a lot of that apparently. That's cool. I always thought if I was bilingual, that would be a really cool job, <laughs> but I am not. <laughs> um, well, let's talk about the actor. So, I mean, we've talked quite a bit about Tony Leung already. Um, obviously, we've already seen him in Chunking Express and in Days of Being Wild. And uh, we're going to see him in In the Mood for Love and um, 2046. He's also in Ashes of Time, correct? Yes, he's in Ashes of Time. Um, he's the in the Grandmaster. Grand so he's, he's a longtime collaborator with Wong Kar Wai. Yeah, and, and you know he's been in all kinds of other things, Infernal Affairs, and um, that's a notable one that several other. He's he's kind of a. It's interesting, like now that he's in this Marvel movie, like he's kind of a legend in, in certain parts of the world, and yet most like, Americans haven't heard of him, and so now he's getting this, uh, you know, Marvel attention, which hopefully will be a good thing. But anyway, um, so Leslie Chung is also in. Days of Being Wild, um, we saw him there. And so when we saw him there, I did a little research and kind of learned about his life. And also, um, this is kind of alluded to in the Christopher Doyle interview that's on the Days of Being Wild disc, but the fact that he died by suicide in 2003. He's also a musician, like a pop musician, which is interesting. There's other pop musicians turned actors in, in Wong Kar Wai's films. Um but I think on the Christopher Doyle interview on that disc, he just says something about, uh, you know, he's no longer suffering or something like that. He had kind of an interesting take on it, you know, being his friend and everything. But there's a lot of speculation that um, his sexuality may have 
been um, maybe played into that and, and kind of not being accepted in a lot of parts of um, of society in, in Hong Kong and it, just because he was gay or bisexual in real life. Yeah, and, and I, I mean, so I guess homosexuality was illegal in Hong Kong until the early 90s and he came out publicly shortly after it was uh, legalized um, or decriminalized. I don't know what the correct terminology to use there. I, but yeah, I, I feel like I don't. I don't know if that was the reason. I mean, I'm sure, he was. It seems yeah. like he was suffering from depression as well, yeah. and had some other some other things that were going on, um, which is a shame because he's a person and he was a super talented actor and uh, a pop star at his own right. And um, and I feel like this film in particular was sort of a, a chance for him to explore that side on screen in a way that he rarely got a chance to. Um, I know also like uh, the art director, Wong Kar Wai's art director and friend who's worked with him on all of his projects, William, is it William Chung? I think that's correct. So I, my, my understanding is that he wanted to make a film um, about homosexuality or that feature homosexuals um, as a way to acknowledge his, his friend's life and existence. Mm-hmm. Um and because he hadn't done it before and he wanted to tackle it in a way where it was like just a story about a relationship um, as opposed to being about necessarily like persecution mm-hmm. um, or hardships or things like that, which is why that doesn't really feature in the film. Yeah, which is something I want to talk about once we talk about the documentary because there's some things that were cut that kind of would have changed that a little bit. But yeah, so yeah, William Chang is that art director. Um, yeah, so the interesting to just to note Leslie Chung's life and, and kind of the, the tragic ending of it. Uh, but he's so incredible in this film. And um, yeah, I, I'm curious to uh, look, just looking at his um, Wikipedia page. He also is in a film called farewell, my concubine in which he plays a gay mm-hmm. character that sort of explores that, um, that side of sexuality as well. So uh, yeah, it, it kind of an interesting figure in, um, in cinema and in, and in this kind of Hong Kong cinema world um, on the subject of kind of this being a LGBTQ themed film. Uh, I wondered if, you know, what was the reception to this like? And I did see that it was kind of, it was banned in mainland China, which is not surprising. Um, but the reception overall seems to be really positive towards it. I won a lot of awards that year and everything. I did say that I think in some places they censored the opening scene uh, and then also the poster, which uh, is not very explicit, but kind of features two men clearly in love uh, was was not allowed to be. Um, it was banned in some places. Just the poster couldn't, couldn't be hung up or anything. So that's interesting to note. I'll say this about the opening scene or really um, like as we transition in the sort of the process of how the film was made Tony Tony Long did not know that um, his character was gay initially. Oh, interesting. Uh, I th- like he, he did not find out that his character. Um, so I guess like an original originally, as he was told the story, he was going to Argentina to like find out about the past of his father who was gay. Yeah. Um, but then once he got to set, he was told eventually that his character was actually going to be gay. Um, yeah, which that's that's kind of in the documentary as well. That's a good uh, kind of transition into talking about what is on the disc here, which is just the film, the trailer, and then this documentary, which is called Buenos Aires Zero Degree. It's about an hour long, and it's uh, it's kind of behind the scenes on the film. Uh, it was made a couple of years after the film was released, but it also features a lot of cut footage, 
including what you're talking about there, where Tony Lung's character uh, originally was looking for his father. Uh, it sounded like his father was in Buenos Aires and had a lover there, but that ended up being completely cut because then later he's writing to his father back in Hong Kong. So it seems like um, that was another case of like the, the story changing as they went uh, and kind of rewriting some of that. At least that's my understanding of it. Yeah. And I think rewriting is the right way to think about it. I, like what it becomes clear to me is, you know, you read about some films and maybe it, you know, it takes 10 20 years just to get financing. And in that time you're sort of mm. writing a script and working on it and drafting. But with one car, why he really is just like the different versions of the film and like all of these deleted scenes that we see are just like different drafts of a script. Mm. Um, and it's not an efficient way to work uh, <laughs> or economic, you know, it doesn't make economic sense to work this way. Um, but it's just the process that, uh, that he is, he's, I guess it works for him. Um, And as part of why I think he started his own production company is to have more control of the finances. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know, I don't remember if this is a documentary or if it was somewhere else, but like at one point during the film, I think like they ran out of money and they had to like go and find new financiers. Uh, And so that's what part of like why the production was as long as it was. Um, I think in this film, we're talking about like five and a half months or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, and, and so, yeah, it's just, it's just a unique way of working. Um, and I think, you know, oftentimes when you look, when you talk about like deleted scenes, um, you're talking about scenes that if they were in the film would either be redundant to information that's still in the film, mm-hmm. or maybe they change how you perceive a, a plot point or something in the film. But here we really are talking about abandoned strands of story that yeah. do not necessarily bear any weight on the finished film. Yeah. That's, a, that's uh, an important as, distinction. As, I think and that's helping me to kind of reframe that yeah. in my head but yeah because there's a few other things too that i want to mention but let's talk about the actual movie first because there's i just want to have just okay. some notes about the things i really like about it um it has i have a list here of just cool shots i had the the waterfall with uh that song playing uh and then we returned to that shot near the end uh with different i think maybe no music or different music um but yeah that ends up being such a great kind of symbol of their relationship like here's this beautiful thing that's also so tumultuous and rocky and like dangerous um but but arresting and and wonderful to see and and beautiful at the same time um there's a really great shot so for the first i don't know third or something of the movie tony lung's character is playing or his uh his job is at this kind of jazz club or salsa club and um that this is after they've broken up at one point, uh, kind of, the, I guess we open with a breakup and, um, we understand that there's been a lot of breakups in the past as well between these two, mm-hmm. but Leslie Chung's character is there with some other people, including a lover, it, it seems. And it's not clear through this whole scene. If Leslie Chung's character knows that, that Tony Lung is there, like, uh, at least it wasn't clear to me. Like, does, does he know he's there? Or does Tony Lung just, you know, kind of watching and, and, and not happy to see to see him with someone else uh, but then at the very end of that scene uh, Leslie Chung gets in the car and they're driving away there's a great shot out the rear window of Tony Lung standing in the road and like going further and further into the distance and then when he's kind of far enough away Leslie Chung turns around and has this kind of knowing look like oh he knew the whole time uh, that was a great little like the whole dynamic of that whole scene kind of leading to that shot it was really wonderful yeah, I, I you know a scene um, 
I'm trying to think it's not visual, but there's a, there's a bit of monologue where he talks about. So like part of the plot is, uh, is Leslie Chung's character gets his hands broken Mm -hmm. and like Tony Long and his monologue has something about like his happiest days or his happiest memories with him or just like when he was helpless and he was feeding him, which I think says a lot about the relationship. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Like it's all of the cooking, all the kitchen scenes, the dancing scenes. Um, I did see you're right. Most of, of the, of the critic reaction at the time, I think was pretty positive. Uh, there were a couple of negative reviews that seemed like they really just hung on the fact that there's not a lot in terms of plot. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is it's not that kind of film. And I appreciated it for not being that kind of film, yeah. you know, um, where it, it really is just exploring these characters in this environment. Yeah. I also made note of it, like just kind of touching moments. And that's one of them is just seeing him care for Leslie Chung's character when he, uh, is so helpless. He helps him dress. He helps him eat and all these things. Um, and yeah, I wrote down that line too. I think it's, uh, I didn't want him to recover too quickly. Those were our happiest days, which is so interesting. And that's a lot of the time that we're kind of trapped in this apartment in a way it feels like it, it's kind of claustrophobic almost, but, um, yeah and it's getting to the kind of the theme of time which is such a big deal for for Wong Kar Wai like we have no idea how much time is passing but um there's also always a clock that you can see in a lot of the shots on the wall and often these interactions are happening like all hours of the night uh it's just all over the place um which just kind of leads to that kind of a sense that I've had in all these movies um of just it's almost like serendipitous is not the right word wistful like we're in the middle of the night these are like just unusual um this kind of adds to the feeling of longing somehow that it's not happening at normal times of day uh, but yeah I don't know, I, it kind of you get lost in this world and the the passage of time kind of messes with your head in a in a good way that that also fits in with the way the narrative is is all over the place too but anyway I really like that, uh, that as well. Just him, him caring for him. You mentioned the dancing scenes as well. Like the, just the physicality that we've had in a lot of these other films definitely carries over to the dancing in this. They dance um, in the kitchen at one point in this really tender scene. They dance like and they practice a dance that they've done at some sort of dance class, and they practice in the apartment. Um, so there's like some are, are less physical in a way, and, and others are much more tender and like sexual. Um, yeah, lots of good dancing scenes. Uh, I really like there's a whole thing with um, cigarettes that I thought was really uh, mm-hmm. interesting where Leslie Chung's, as, as he's more and more recovered, he he's just going out at all hours of the night and Tony Lung d- d- suspects that he, I think that he's, you know, having um, sexual exploits and uh, he always says, oh, I just went out to buy cigarettes and, and that's his excuse. So then Tony Lung, comes in the next day and he has like two humongous cases full of cigarettes and starts stacking them up. He's like, now you never have to go buy them. And it's just kind of his way of trying to be controlling. I thought that was a nice kind of um, mm-hmm. just story way to, to, to illustrate that in a, in a kind of a funny way. What did you think about, um, you know what I really like in terms of the photography? It makes me want to go there. Is the shot at the, what do they call it? The end of the world or the edge yeah, of the world? Yeah, with like the lighthouse. Like, Yes. Like, and like, I mean, that's, I mean, a real place you can go there. I want to go and I would like to now. Um, I don't know that I've seen that depicted on film a lot or really any of this locale. Yeah. I just need to watch more uh, film set in Argentina. Yeah. It's, South America. it's really gorgeous. And then like the waterfall, of course, is really gorgeous. And then that's returned to a few times. The waterfall also is, is a great, like 
we always wanted to go there together. And, you know, in typical Wong Kar Wai fashion, there's a romance that doesn't end happily, despite the title, which the title's interesting. Maybe we talk about that. But um, in the end, Tony Lung goes there alone and he, his voiceover says, you know, I always thought we'd be here together and, and we're not. And there's, it's just kind of devastating. Um, but but that that location is really beautiful, too. Um there's another line that I really love and when they have, so they have a few fights that are like really visceral and like violent almost. Um, and at one point Tony Lung, you know, screams at him. I had no regrets until I met you. Now my regrets could kill me. That was such a potent, <laughs> potent emotional line. It's like, damn. Um, but yeah, I thought that was really good. So just some really good, um, some writing amidst all this and so well acted. Uh, so part of the story too, and this is something that we learned in the documentary, is that Leslie Chung had to leave production. And again, like as you're talking about the way Wong Kar Wai is working, he kind of just rewrote it. And it says in the documentary, he like went to a coffee shop and figured out how am I going to deal with this in the story. Um, which yes, yeah, improvisational in that in that Wong Kar Wai sort of way. Um, but so after Leslie Chung leaves, then um, Tony Lung's character. And I feel, so they have character names, but even in this documentary, Wong Kar Wai is calling them Tony and Leslie as he's talking about the characters in the film. So I, I think it's fine to just call them Tony and Leslie. Um, but uh, Tony Lung's character meets Chong Chin, whose character's name is Chong. And he's this uh, kind of young man who works at the same restaurant. And then we end up following him quite a bit. And he's interesting. He's kind of, he records everything. He's he's really into hearing. He talks about um you someone can lie to you with their words but you can hear it in their voice whether they're telling the truth or something so he's a kind of an interesting figure and um he's the one who goes to the end of the world there uh one one interesting line is that at one point they are drinking together and he uh kind of takes tony home tony long vomits on the floor and then he says <laughs> something about um he, he tells him to squint his eyes and he says, you look like the blind swordsman. And as I was doing research around this, <laughs> Tony Lung played the blind swordsman in Ashes of Time. That's kind of a funny little oh. Easter egg. Almost. See, I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I didn't remember that, but I, I guess I assumed that was like a reference to Zatoichi or something. Well, I'm going from uh, IMDb, like Tony Lung's character is named blind swordsman. So I assumed that was sort of a reference. I mean, I believe but, it. Yeah. Uh, uh, huh. That's interesting. Another really funny moment was, um, so we see Tony Lung cook for Leslie Chung's character so many times after Leslie Chung is, is recovered and kind of back on his feet. Yeah, at one point, uh, Tony Lung's character is really sick. He's like wrapped up in a blanket and he's like very pale. Like he just looks really physically ill. And <laughs> Leslie Chung is begging him to cook for him. And he gets so mad. He says, <laughs> are, are you even a human? He says, you ask a sick man to cook for you? And then immediately cuts and he's cooking. <laughs> He's wrapped up in a blanket looking so miserable <laughs> cooking in the kitchen. That really made me laugh. So yeah, this probably, this may have had the most laughs for me as well. I had a, a few moments that really were funny. In addition to being maybe the most emotional one. But, um, oh, there's another moment that kind of gets at the whole memory and kind of time passing thing. It's when he is telling Chong Chin goodbye. Uh, they, 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 they hug and, uh, but like the, the frame rate, it almost seems like the frame rate got jumpy or something. And I was like, mm. is this a Wi-Fi thing? Oh, wait, and this is a disc, so it can't be a Wi-Fi thing. But like it has some like freeze frames in the middle of this scene, uh, which reminded me of Chunking Express where 
we had a few mm-hmm. moments that would, we would just freeze on somebody's face as they're feeling something and, and which kind of suggested like this is a memory they're going to hold on to so i had the same kind of feeling there but instead of just one freeze frame it was just like a few of the frames were just elongated almost and given it this kind of jumpy feeling for a minute it's kind of an interesting little touch yeah i think um and, and that'll i probably come up when we talk more about um the documentary and, and other sources but that's kind of a, a stylistic holdover from the previous films mm. that I think they started to rely on more and more as the production went on. Mm, interesting. <laughs> well, uh, let's talk about any, any other thoughts about the film. And then there's a few little things from the uh, documentary that I wanted to, to mention. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. Yeah, so, Buenos Aires, zero degrees. So yeah, made in 1999. And so there, it has some members of the crew going back to these locations and looking around um, one of whom I can't remember what her role was, but she uh, it just kind of at the end of the documentary talks about she left Argentina halfway through the production of the film and then watched the premiere in Hong Kong and kind of didn't like her job there. And that got her like she decided to move back to Argentina and just live there. I thought that was really interesting. Um, but yeah, I had a few kind of things I noted that were they were kind of cool. I mean, one is that, um, there was a kind of a brief mention that they shot this at all hours of the night. So like the time we're seeing on the clock in their apartment may have been real. Like they really were just making this all (laughs) really, really late at night. It's like two and four in the morning at different times. Um, Yeah. So I guess let's see that he talks about, uh, Oh, there's a funny Tony, Tony Lung quote. He's behind the scenes. Uh, They originally thought it was going to be like three weeks or something like that. A three week shoot and ended up being five and a half months. And um, Wong Kar Wai, he, he would say, how much longer do you think to Wong Kar Wai? And he would always say another 10 days or so. And it, like he said that multiple <laughs> times that it stretched out so long. Um, but yeah, there's stuff about Leslie Chung leaving early because of some scheduling conflicts. Um, there is also an, another, and just a funny thing. And then we can talk about the um, kind of the, the deleted scenes or deleted extra footage. Um, it's another thing of Tony Lung talking about, uh, just kind of the behind the scenes he's being interviewed in hotel room or something and he says um people always ask me what my favorite role is or the role i'm most happy with and he says days of being wild and he says but you're only in one scene and he's like exactly that's the reason i thought that was really funny (laughs) he's barely in it and that's his favorite thing he's ever done um but yeah so it's like there's a few different plot lines uh that that were cut one is that we talked about the father stuff uh, but there's another part where um, there's this woman who seems to be like she's infatuated with Tony Lung's character uh, and is kind of jealous of Leslie Chung. And this kind of gets at the stuff that you were you were mentioning, like so many films that are about gay characters, um, you know, have kind of tragedy or, or like different things that uh, kind of can recur in those kinds of stories. And this this kind of doesn't do any of those things in a good way but in this cut storyline it uh basically leads to like a suicide attempt um by tony lung after leslie chung has gone um and she takes care of him um and then it seems like he's moved away at some point again the time is hazy on exactly when these things are happening but at some point leslie chung comes to find him and she says, didn't you hear he's dead? Uh, which would have been a really interesting, like very different plot point. Very, and we see yeah. Leslie Chung's reaction to that. And like, of course, none of that's in the movie at all. Uh, and, and we 
see Leslie Chung doing other things towards the end of the film. Uh, but yeah, I thought that was a really interesting uh, section that was that was cut. Yeah, I think um, the the documentary itself, I think it's interesting as, as a, sort of like the process of making the film. Yeah. And I think this, in conjunction with Chris Doyle's diary, gives you a real good sense of sort of like how this process works. Because mm. I feel like up to this point, we've kind of been talking talking about it and talking around it. But here you really see like, you know, there are days where they actually weren't doing any shooting because Kwon Kar Wai was waiting for, you know, the muse to strike. Um, or there were days, as Chris Doyle says in his diary, that Wong Kar Wai was trying to figure out what to do in terms of the story. So he would send them out to shoot footage of other things. Mm. So like the day they shot the waterfalls, Wong Kar Wai was not there. Mm. Um, or like there, there are other like similar things like that that they're shooting without him because he has to figure out the plot or he's figuring out the logistics or something else or setting the schedule because Leslie Chung has to go and do uh, a concert or something. Yeah. Um, and then like the character that you mentioned, um, uh, played by Shirley Kwan, like Chris Doyle refers to that, that he says like Christmas in Argentina no longer sounds like the crew like a crew in joke Shirley Kwan and Shang Chen have arrived to join the cast or what we're starting to call the casualty list. And that kind of gives you like okay. the idea of sort of like what the mindset was at the time, mm -hmm. because everybody's sort of like sitting around, not knowing what's going on, but yeah. just sort of trusting the process. Um, yeah. You definitely get a sense that they're all just, pretty stressed out in the documentary. Uh, but yeah, I wanted to mention, so you're, you're referencing Christopher Doyle's um, diary production diary, which is available online that you'd sent me and I'll, I'll link to that in the show notes. Oh. It's online. I actually, uh, I like when I was reading it online, uh, I realized that it's actually in a book that I bought oh. um, early in the pandemic. I found out that there were these, um, it's like 13 volumes of like a literary journal called projections that the director, Michael Borman, I think edited. Hmm. Um, and this was in like projections eight. I think uh, this diary was, was wow. printed in there. Um, yeah, it's the, the whole series of books are, are interesting because it's just filmmakers and critic, like a portion of the journal are filmmakers writing about the process of making a particular film. They're like, there's some criticism and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I think it would be interesting, uh, to find a, an excuse to go through them all. Um, cause yeah, it's like early in the pandemic when I found these things existed, I got, uh, a set of them. Mm, nice. I had to track them down from different sellers, but yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't like. I feel like this diary is an invaluable resource, uh, just because it it gives you just a sense of how these films are actually made and the toll that it takes on crews. Yeah. Uh, and also going forward, it'll tell you like why Christopher Christopher Doyle leaves um, the production of In the Mood for Love. I think he also, I can't remember if he was, was involved in uh, Twenty Forty Six or not, and he left during that. Hmm. Um, but yeah, it, it tells you just sort of like why is. For some people, it's not worth the hassle. Yeah, because um, they have lives they want to live. Yeah, and, and yeah, you never know how much yeah. time it's going to actually take, and all of that. Yeah, so that's a whole interesting plot that's cut, and then there's another um, woman. So, Chang Chin's character, who, <laughs> in my notes, I referred to him as third wheel boy because he kind of shows up and tries to drive <laughs> a wedge between Tony and Leslie. He doesn't try to exactly, but he's sort of like he seems to be he's interested in Tony in a way. Anyway. Um, there we see him doing more things with his tape recorder he's recording things around town like and it wasn't clear to me at first like is this cut footage from the movie or is this just footage of him like living his life recording stuff <laughs> like, and i think it was from the movie because at one point he talks to a woman on a train and she doesn't want to talk to him uh, but she has a game boy 
And then we later see the same woman um, interacting with Tony Lung a lot. It seems like after Chung Chen has left town that um, Tony Lung kind of befriended her. It almost seemed romantic in some of the shots we were seeing. Uh, but yeah, her character is completely cut, but she always has this like this. It's like this 90s Game Boy, like original Game Boy with her and she's playing it at different times. But yeah, another another thread that was uh not followed through there was another really funny thing in that too where chung chen's character uh is recording things he's he's just like he's basically like if he had an instagram story that's what he would be doing like he was like i just ate two hot dogs they were terrible and like just talking about the things that he's doing um that that line and always like i keep thinking about in chunking express where he the character eats four chef salads in one night <laughs> like that, that just makes me laugh so much for some reason anyway um but yeah that's another section that's uh detailed and, and shown a lot of in the in the documentary well that's all i had from the dat uh did you have any other thoughts on on buenos aires zero degree um i would just say as a as a making a documentary i think it's up there with um burden of dreams as a film that's worthwhile in its own right um, I think like the focus on the crew, right? Cause like mm-hmm. Wonka White does not appear in it at all, except as like sort of like journal entries or something. Yeah. Um, and I think just like the, the focus on the crew and the actors and things, um, I think is, is sort of interesting, an interesting peek, uh, into the process. Yeah. Yeah. One of them talks about like the huge sense of loss they had once they finished the film, which was interesting. And you see that yeah, it, it, it did took a toll on them, as you said, and, um, yeah, it's really interesting to see that that stuff. Well, that is happy together. Um, I want to I want to maybe say this is my favorite so far. I really really like this one, uh, but I mean that that's a big statement because I really love Chunking Express as well. Anyway, this is a really good one, and it's it's one that was kind of like under the radar for me. Like I, I wasn't really aware much of it at all. Um, versus Chunking Express or In the Mood for Love, which I've I've heard so much about, even though I've never seen it. Um, which speaking of that is the next thing we're going to be talking about on the next episode in the mood for love and then just one more after that with 2046 so we're getting close to the end of this box set i've really enjoyed it so far i think it's been really um rewarding to to not just watch these but then to, to kind of discuss and dig into them because uh, they're the kind of films that really reward that i was gonna say i'm gonna try to uh talk you into doing um in the mood for love is a two-part three-hour <laughs> um i'm in let's do it (laughs) i think we'll we'll see i but i think it might be worth it yeah i don't know from what i understand there's a lot there and that i think there's a lot of supplements on the disc too because it had a standalone and i think most of that stuff carries over and i'm sure there's even stuff on criterion channel that's not on the disc so i think there's a lot probably a lot to discuss yeah well, that will be for next time, and that will do it for this episode of Art House Garage. Thanks so much, Omaya, for tackling both of these films today. I couldn't do it without you. Thank you, as always, for having me. <laughs> You're very welcome. And uh, on the next episode, as we mentioned, we'll, we'll do In the Mood for Love. I'm also hoping to review the new film, The Eyes of Tammy Faye, which is directed by Michael Showalter. It stars Jessica Chastain and Andrew Garfield. And it's a true story about Tammy Faye Baker and Jim Baker, who were televangelists in the 70s. I'm a big fan of Michael Showalter's work. Uh, I've kind of been watching him since college with different things as an actor and as a filmmaker. 
and I'm also really like fascinated slash repulsed by the evangelical culture and like the history there. So I, it's really right up my alley. Like I, I'm fascinated in the story and I'm, I'm really excited about the performers and the filmmaker behind it. So that is the plan. Um, hopefully I'll get access to that and, and be able to discuss that one next time. And with that, thank you so much for listening to Art House Garage. We've got a few years worth of episodes now. You can hear all of those in your podcast app of choice. Our theme music is by composer Paul Hunefeld. You can learn more at appallingproductions.com or find a link in the show notes. If you want to support Art House Garage, you can leave a rating or review in your podcast app, or you can buy an Art House Garage t-shirt at arthousegaragecom shop. And you can stay in the loop about Art House Garage and the films we're covering by subscribing to our email newsletter that's at arthousegarage.com slash subscribe you can also email me directly andrew at arthousegarage.com and of course follow on social media you can find us on facebook twitter instagram and letterboxd just search at arthousegarage in all those places or find links in the show notes and that will do it for this episode thanks again so much for listening and until next time keep it snob free